Hello and welcome to Office Hours, a SICE Europe Journal of Global Affairs production. I'm your host, Stefanella Julius, a master's student here and producer on the Office Hours team. Our episodes explore important international issues through informal Office Hours style conversations between professors and students. For this episode, I'm excited to be here with Professor Tito Cordella and our fellow SAI student, Parth Patel, to discuss the current turmoil in global financial markets. Tito Cordella is the Zamani Chair in Development Economics here at SAIS Europe. Professor Cordella has extensive experience within Bretton Woods institutions. He was a part of the Asian Crisis Team in the IMF and was then the Brazil Chief Economist at the World Bank. Professor Cordella has policy experience ranging from monetary and fiscal policy to debt restructuring and financial products. Path Patel is a first-year student here at SAIS. Path has a background in management consulting, and he's also spent time in Korea as a Fulbright scholar. His areas of interest include economic development, central banking, and financial markets. So, to start off with, Professor Cordella, could you give our listeners a slight overview of what's been happening in global financial markets over the over the past few weeks? Well, I'm not sure that much has happened for international financial markets. Mm-hmm. I think what we have seen is some specific episodes, both in the US and in Europe, mm-hmm. of different nature, but they both sort of put some question on the stability of some financial institutions. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, I don't think here we are really in presence of a sort of a widespread panic or crisis. Mm-hmm. Actually, there has been some problems that was pretty well uh, focalized in certain institutions that have been well dealt with in a pretty effective way in the US. I'm, I'm not sure to say the same of what happened to very Swiss, but it is something else. Um, so, Path, I know that you're um, in Professor Cordella's financial crises class. What, what are your what are your initial insights on all of this? I think it's really interesting to see, sort of based on a theory we learn in class, and then see actually a real. I guess calling it a banking crisis would be a little too much of a hyperbole, but it is interesting to see how what we learn in theory is applicable to real life, and specifically other crises in real life. For example, in the class, we're doing a final paper on any crisis that has impacted the world markets, and I picked this really good debt crisis, and I think it's really interesting because on a surface level, that debt crisis is just a typical debt crisis I read of in an economic textbook, but there's so many more political actors and political ploys involved in this that I think extend beyond just the realm of economics, so it's cool to see the fine line between both blending at the school specifically. No, I have to be honest, honestly, when I was sort of witnessing from reading the papers, the Silicon Valley bank crisis. Honestly, it was really a sort of, it was pretty strange and unique. It happened this year. That is the very year in which uh, Diamond Dick just got their Nobel Prizes on, yeah. on bank runs. What, what you have is an example of a very, a very classical bank run on very on banks that didn't look at all as old fashioned, but looks like the venture capitalist high tech kind of bank. So, all theory applies to, to the new world, and actually probably uh, we tend to forget that most of the regulators, supervisors should be pretty careful with, with many to avoid uh, the big lack of excessive risk, especially on the side of initial deposits. Well, Professor, would you consider this to be 
a bank run per se, even though, for example, Biden announced that all these deposits be secured to prevent other bank runs from happening or to prevent it from spreading throughout the system. Or do you think this is just sort of one odd event that will probably not be seen again for the next few decades? Oh, a few decades, I've never bet in such a bank run. <laughs> I would say it was really a bank run, and honestly, what I found a little bit interesting in this is in the cat and mouse game between the regulators and the financial industry. Luckily, there is this tenet in banking uh, theory that sort of are insured depositors, the ones who put basically on the bank. So if you took the new FDIC regulation, maybe you had that the FDIC was encouraging banks to have a lot of uninsured depositors. The actors were paying less on the deposit insurance with premium if they had many insured depositors. And actually what the director realized that insured depositors are, are the first ones that would run, and this is exactly what happened. So this is a very traditional run, like the one in the in the Mary Poppins movies, it's just at some point people saw that their deposits were not sure, and immediately they withdrew them, and now we can just withdraw deposits on your cell phones, it becomes super fast. So what the Fed did is sort of this, okay, uh, an insured depositor can de facto be insured also because even a regional bank can, have, can be a systemic one. But at this point, I think it's, uh, I, honestly, on a personal point of view, something I worked in in the past, I think it would be probably be good to be explicit on the deposits in the banking system are uh, the jure uh, insurer and the bank should pay a premium that is linked to how risky uh, their behavior is. So you think the structure of how these banks pay to the deposit fund or the insurance fund should be changed? Well, I think that the risk-based component is not enough. Probably the FDIC should tell depositors that deposit are insured up to even very high level, but in this in exchange for these banks should pay higher deposit insurance that is risk-based. The real problem is that that is not clear. It's the only problem is always the problem of what is the perimeter of financial regulation. If now banks are insured, are no bank financial institutions also insured, so it's complicated. So do you think, maybe it's for some of our listeners that don't know how the deposit insurance scheme works, how does it work currently and how does this differ from having a risk premium based? No, it's already a little bit okay. based on it. So now the story in the US is that every deposit below $250,000 is insured, FDIC insured. So if the bank fails, the depositors is reimbursing for The depositor can actually have more deposits, each below $250,000, so all these are insured. And the banks pay uh, a premium on the deposit insurance that is partly based on the risk. But the FDIC is not sort of fully financed. So even in this case, what it came out was the idea that if the cost for the FDIC would be higher than the available funds, all the banking system would have been tax exposed. Okay, very interesting. And have you seen maybe from this sort of bank failure of SVB, do you think there's been any repercussions in the developing world or or have we seen any empirical data that's come out recently, any sort of sign that the developing world is also feeling the impact of said banking crisis? I'm a little bit scared. So I think uh, on the one hand, the developing world probably is feeling some pressure for the increasing in interest in the glo- global interest rate. So if 
developing, more than developing countries, they think it's something aside. If emerging market are mainly borrowing in international capital markets, the fact that the cost of borrowing increase made emerging market in a weaker position. Nonetheless, I have to confess that many people were sort of expecting a new sort of a taper tantrum. What happened like in 2013, if we were Trump and Ben Bernanke said that the Fed could taper its quantitative easing and immediately we had a major fall in all currency and stock markets around the world. This did not happen also because, like, and I'm not really an expert, but my guess is that during this episode of very abundant liquidity, money instead of running to emerging markets, ran the US stock market. But I don't think there have been so much exposure. So money didn't flow as, as it had been in an episode toward the, the developing world, rather it stayed in the This is why we have not yet experienced in major episode of financial turmoil worldwide. In a large emerging markets. Our case is the Argentina, the very tough situations that the many countries are facing, but again, I don't think they're really linked to the sudden change in the system. Okay, very, very interesting. So maybe I want to take some time to sort of shift our scope away from the US and just to the world at large, um, specifically at the point you mentioned about rising interest rates. A lot of these emerging economies need investment to spur you know, infrastructure development and things for their own economies. Do you think that, as one of the things we're learning in class, one crisis can lead to another. Do you think that some of these countries may be in risk of a debt crisis given the rising interest rates that they're experiencing um, well, in world capital markets? It might be, and there are situations people are getting a little bit worried about. But I think that most of the big, there are two different episodes. One, I, again, I think it's important to distinguish between emerging market and maybe frontier economies, that these economies that are uh, intertwining international capital market and more developing countries that are more realized, realized more on uh, international aid, concessional credit flows. So the big picture on this side, and I think that if you look at the, of the World Bank in the last couple, three or four, two or three years, it's putting a lot of warning about the difficult death situation of many developing economies. But again, this the story for me is a little bit different one. Mainly what happened after the stock of debt of many developing countries was forgiven to the old uh, EPIC program. These countries got access to international capital market. Some of them, not many, probably are talking African six, seven countries. And they started borrowing. And finally, since they had resolved their debt of their hand, were able to access international capital market. And this started to create the addiction to new money and this weakened the overall uh, debt sustainability position. This is one part of the story. The other is the new uh, effect of the emergence of the international scene of a new major lender, that is China, and it sort of took the role, became the, by large the major lender to developing countries. And now, nowadays, many of these countries, especially with the COVID crisis, especially countries that are imposing imports, food, and uh, natural resources, are in a difficult situation. They are pressure in order to be able to serve the need of the population to serve the debt. And there is the idea of whether a new debt restructuring may occur or not. But I don't think that, so this, this restructuring are not so much on the kind of 
emerging market crisis like the Argentina one that we had, I think is a sort of new kind of debate like the one that has been in the kind of poor country that's a bit. I'm very glad you brought up the point about China specifically. I think that's very interesting, especially because as we've seen in your class in the past couple of years, China's share of financing emerging markets has grown larger and larger. So how do you see this? What's your prediction on the future of debt diplomacy, or as many scholars say, quote, the debt trap that China employs when it submerges an emerging economy in debt and then in exchange for forgiveness of debt takes over, like, for example, the Kurgada port in Sri Lanka or other specific things that they might use to advance their political goals? How do you think, how do you think other actors that are not necessarily as friendly to China should act on this and also have the resources and capabilities to help these emerging economies finance their uh, investment goals? Well, this is is a real good question, and actually, it sounds that it's very close to my current research interest, and it is something I try to understand. Because one thing is, in the last few years, there have been much more information about the China lending, and there is just came out a very interesting working paper reading this morning on China's international and class resource, whether it can compete with IMF. So what I'm trying to do now, just to let you know a little bit about what is to what I did on research was, is just looking at the at the aid and credit flows between different types of creditors, such as multilateral, Paris Club, China commercial over the last let's say forty years. And here I think what is sort of interesting, and this is what I think is interesting of keeping a sort of historical perspective, is I don't think that the behavior, the behavior of China now is very different from the behavior of Paris Club or Western Count in the 1980s, from the late 1970s to the 1980s. So there were the same kinds of debt diplomacy in which country was borrowing a lot and Repaying a lot, but receiving net flows. Is it? So it was, this is what I'm interested in looking at this difference between gross flows, the fact why a country is receiving a lot and paying a lot, is a bit the one of net flows, that is a difference between what it receives and what it pays back. And so what happened is the story, when we have the EPT initiative, this is the data we are looking, there was a large decrease in gross flows, of course, but net flows didn't increase. So the fact that the West forgave many of those countries, it means that they gave them more resources, so they multilateral. And so we are trying to look at this, the same thing, similar things are happening to China. And some, a lot of China lending is given to repay some China loans. And I think the real question is that, uh, maybe you can discuss a little bit later, so since Fred was in your question, is how the international financial architecture will be planned. Right. And I think my point, the point that I try, okay, my working hypothesis is that during the 80s, it was a pretty easy game, because the Soviet Union was not part of the international aid game. played a different game, strategic interest, it was not through international financial institutions. So you had sort of uh, the, part, the main creditor, that were many the big Western donors of Paris Club were lending, countries were ending up in a crisis, and then you go to the Paris Club, the IMF, the World Bank, you sort of found a deal because it was a really a cooperative uh, relation between the Paris Club, IMF, and World Bank. 
Now with the emergence of China, it's different. China doesn't want to be part of the Paris Plan. And so there is this idea that it's very difficult to negotiate, to have a deal between Paris Club, China, and the IMF. If you are studying on Sri Lanka, you know how long it took. It took forever, and it took forever. Why? There was just constant, different, different competing interests, uh, to say the least. Exactly. So the problem is to say, given these competing interests, what would happen? I don't think the international financial architecture can sustain too much competition between financial blocks. So my, and this is my own view, but I will probably be probably around very soon, is that at the end, like, to, competition is not a good equilibrium because it's not in the interest of anybody. Because the reward is that if you and I pay to be the senior creditor, well, I promise you money, you default on me to give to the other senior creditor, and it will So I think the solution would be either there would be this competition would decrease the total amount of flows in the developing world, or there would be sort of what is called the political decoupling, in which a bunch of countries stay in the, under the Western influence and the other in China as well. What do you think about the ethical sort of implications of this? Do you think this would make financial markets less efficient, or if we divide it into two separate blocks, are we going back towards a maybe economic quasi cold war? What are your thoughts on, I guess, the meta of this of this experience in general? I don't know. I don't. On this on the developing things, I think it's pretty doable. It's not something that I like as an idea, also because you know that there is competition often. Uh, there is a sort of race to the bottom of standards and things you can see that are important, the governance, environmental standards, corruption, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, actually. So this is the risk of the race to the bottom. On the one hand, you think this would destroy the international financial detection? No, because these, I don't think, are made are key players. It could happen to say things in, in large emerging markets, like Argentina, Maybe something that could happen in Venezuela, if it's not more large in the financial market, by the way. So I don't think in the developing world it would be a problem for international financial architecture. We just ask if these are good developing models for the world. And I think nobody has a particularly good blessing to be. The idea on the trade under the cutting is much more complicated. <laughs> I'm not sure to be the person who has a have some idea, but I don't know how my ideas are synthesized with the Well, great. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, are there are there any other things that you wanted to wanted to discuss, Bob? Um, maybe just one final question, I suppose, uh, before we wrap up here. What are your thoughts on you know going forward into the future, living in a world with a multipolar financial architecture? Do you think there's any other, for example? Looking beyond 2050 or whatnot, when other countries such as Nigeria, India, grow in population as a result, grow economically, do you think they will also become major players in the world and will shift back to a multipolar world order? Or do you think this bipolar dichotomy between China and the US is what's going to dominate the economics of the future for the, at least the foreseeable future? I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know. Honestly, the answer is I really no idea. I cannot have yeah. a it's very difficult to read so much into the future. Like it would be great that we could make a lot of money out of options in the future. <laughs> no, but the future is actually... I think, Ch- I think there could be sort of strong competition vis-a-vis natural resources. In, in this sense, I can see 
India becoming a major player. Because it won't, well, I don't see India to be squeezed between uh, China and the West. So is there a, I don't know, but you study international relations. You probably, I think, are much more uh, knowledge than I am in uh, forecasting what the, the, the multipolar world will look like from international relations perspective. Very fair. I'm curious, do you see any economic or financial benefits from this multipolarity, or is it just a, like you said, a race to the bottom? No, no, no. I was saying, let me say, I was saying about the race to the bottom vis a vis the development, the game. Development financing. So, development finance. Yes. The rest, look, I don't know. I, I really, I really believe in multilateral figures. But, so, my idea is that I also tend to be pretty skeptical of regional development, like countries are open in the multilateral but in this sense of the global value chain, I'm very confused. Because on the one hand, I also have to think in a sort of paradoxical way. There will be certain, there will be cost, cost of the capital, but I can also see some potential gain. One is that we have we sort of differentiate risk. Mm-hmm. So if something happens on one side of the world, maybe with a value chain, maybe it's a little bit more cost costly. But again, it's easier to switch from one to the other. So if you said what happened to COVID, the real problem was that we had a fixed value chain. Something happened to that value chain, there's not much to do. So the idea is that now you could have value chains that are more interchangeable. Maybe it's cost, but I can also think as an insurance. And not only the political one that people have in mind what happened in China based on one, but also from if something happened at the level of major network disaster, some political crisis in countries we don't expect. The idea is that there is more interchangeability in value chain may be at, end up with sort of a similar value. And I'm, I'm curious, just before we wrap up, in terms of kind of environmental policy and things like re- renewables, do you see multipolarity being a driving force or once again, to, to use your phrase, something that, that leads to a, to a race to the bottom as, as, as people compete? Honestly, I think. Okay. <laughs> so, I can see if there is competition in producing cheaper and cheaper solar panels, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But I really, I, I really think that uh, we need probably, we need sort of multipolar agreement or mm-hmm. very strong pressure at the national level to cope with this. Right? I wouldn't be able to, it would be too much of a stretch for me to try to say something related to this. Well, thank you so much to both of you. This has been really interesting. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to Professor Tito Cordella and Parth Patel for joining us on the podcast today. Office Hours is a Sedgka affiliated podcast produced by Audrey Lodez, Sophia Notter, Ella Russell, Chloe Haynes, and me, Stefanella Julius. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and the Sedgka website. Search sicejournal.eu for more Sedgka content. Thanks for listening. 